Yehuda Geber here, and we're going to explore today the story of the uh, largest political Jewish political party in Poland, in pre-war Poland, the Bund. The Bund, which pretty much doesn't exist today, and there are some variants of it that do exist in a small way, but definitely not with all the uh, power and, and size that it was in pre-war Poland. The Bund was the largest, like I said, Jewish political party. Um, its official platform was both socialism and Yiddish culture. They were an anti-religious and anti-Zionist political party. Now, just to put it into context, in interwar Jewish Poland, uh, the Jews had were very political. The politicization of the Jewish people in Eastern Europe, especially in Poland, is a fascinating story. Starts at the end of the 19th century and comes to its peak in the interwar period. They have loads of political parties who are very active, and they all send representatives to the Polish CM, to the Polish parliament. And there are elections, and uh, it's pretty much besides for the state of Israel, of course, today, it's pretty much the only country in history that regularly had uh, um, quite a few Jewish political parties that had active members in the Polish parliament on municipal city councils all across Poland. They were extremely active in Polish uh, political life. So you have, of course, the Agudas Yisrael, which is the religious political party. You have the various different Zionist political parties, the general Zionists, the labor Zionists, um, and others. You have the Folks Party. You have assimilated Jews in Poland who are voting for Polish parties. But you do have these, these Jewish parties, the main one of which was the Bund. The Bund was militantly anti-religious, and even more than they were anti-religious, they were anti-Zionist. They were very patriotic about Poland. Poland is our home. We have to make it work here. There's anti-Semitism, there's social issues, there's economic issues, there's all kinds of issues, but we want to make it work and we're going to fix it. We're going to fix all the, we're aware of the problems and we're going to fix them. That was their platform. Um, they felt that Zionism was unrealistic. It was distracting people from making it work. Because of their socialist ideals, they believed that you can't speak of idealistic solutions when the factory worker is coming home and he doesn't have enough money to provide for his family. So we have to folk focus on the practical issues before we focus on all kinds of other idealistic solutions. They're also very anti-religious. They believed in Jewish culture, uh, especially the Yiddish language, literature, poetry, poetry, the Yiddish theater. Uh, they were big promoters of the Yiddish theater and the early Yiddish film industry and uh, plays and uh, art and uh, Yiddish intellectuals and the Yiddish press. That was all them. They were all very much promoting those ideals. Incredibly enough, there were many religious Jews who voted for the Bund. Now, just to give you an idea of the paradox that a political party like the Bund is, they're exceedingly popular. In 1939, when, when the, the last uh, um, elections before the war uh, happened, they're city elections. They're voting for the city council. In Lodz, the Bund wins the most seats. They win a huge amount of the Jewish vote like 40%, something like that. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Something like 40%. Now, we know that over a third of the city population in Lodz was religious Jews. Now, if they win 40%, the Bund is winning 40%, that means we know for a fact that there are religious Jews, Hasidic Jews, Gera Hasidim, 
Alexander Hasidim, who are voting for the Bund. Now, why would that happen? So here's the paradox. The Bund is so anti-religious that they'll be the only people, the only Jews in Poland, who would, just despite religion, would stand outside a shul on Yom Kippur selling their newspaper. Selling newspapers, to be provocative like that. On the other hand, what if the following scenario takes place? A person is, a, let's say, just for an example, an Alexander Chassid, it doesn't have to be, it could be any Polish Chassid or non-Chassid or whatever it is, a religious Jew. He works in a textile factory in an industrial city like Lodz, just for argument's sake. And what happens? The owner of the factory is a Pole. The foreman is a Pole, the manager. A lot of the workers are Jews, and he's a religious Jew. And Friday afternoon, he's ready to leave. And the, work, the, the, the manager says, where are you going? He says, you know, I have Shabbos. He says, oh, so you're not going to come tomorrow in either? He says, no. Well, he says, well, if you don't come in tomorrow, then don't come back on Monday. Which sounds like such a familiar slogan that we're used to growing up as hearing that it takes place in the United States. Well, lo and behold, it takes place in Poland as well. Just it's more in style to talk about how assimilation worked in the United States that we tend to forget that it took place in Poland. The struggle to keep Shabbos in the factories for the very same reason. Now, what does this Jew do? What does he do? Agudis Yisrael, his political party, is very busy with Jewish education. Girls' education, Beis Yaakov, boys' education, religious issues, you know, things like that. But they're not exactly fighting anti-Semitism. They're not exactly sticking up for workers' rights. The Zionist political parties, if he would turn to them for assistance, they would say, well, you know, what we believe is that you should, excuse me, you should try to leave this country because it's just too hard here and try to settle in the land of Israel and fight the British immigration quotas, which is not a very practical solution for Rabbi Yankel who wants to keep his job in the factory. But the Bund will say what that guy is doing is anti-Semitism. Now think about it, the Bund is against keeping Shabbos. And this guy is being fired for keeping Shabbos. But the Bund is for the worker. They're socialists. They want to be successful in Poland. And this is anti-Semitism. And one of their main platforms is to end anti-Semitism in Poland based on their ideal of socialism, that, you know, class struggles and all that. So they're going to go and they're going to hire lawyers. They're going to go to court. And they're going to make sure that this guy doesn't get fired because they're going to prove that it's anti-Semitic, which is officially illegal in Poland during the interwar period. And they're going to make sure that he keeps his job and is allowed to keep Shabbos. So the Bund, on a practical level, is helping these people. And that's why they have this amazing support, despite the fact that they're so anti-religious, despite the fact that they're so anti-Zionist. Many of these people support them. And uh, they're founded in Vilna, actually, in 1897. I recently saw a commemorative um, medallion from 1947, talking about in the ashes following the Holocaust of the 50th anniversary of the Bund, which is a gathering that takes place in Poland two years after the war to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Bund. So you're talking about it was still trying to rebuild itself after the war. And its peak was reached during interwar Poland. They produced some very impressive leaders, made major contributions to Jewish culture, they were very involved in, in, uh, in the ghettos during the war, in uh, the resistance, in, in a lot of the soup kitchens and self-help, um, but they never really recovered after the war. Um, 
Just an interesting anecdote, which I heard from a person who witnessed it, a very, very special Yiddish Bishu Eibeshitz, who unfortunately just passed away a couple of months ago at the ripe old age of 103, who was lucid and clear with a perfect memory till the very end, and I interviewed him on an, a couple of occasions, and he told me that he remembered when, just to give you an idea how old he is, was, that he remembered when Rameir Shapiro was the Rav in Piotrkov. Uh, before he was the Rav in Lublin, before he founded Yeshivas Chachme Lublin. And uh, the Bund was so powerful in Poland before the war that they controlled most of the communities. They controlled most of the kehilas in Jewish Poland. And Rameir Shapiro wanted to build a new mikveh in Piotrkov. And uh, he, there was a kosher mikveh, but Rameir Shapiro being the visionary he, that he was, which is a story in itself for another time, he wanted to redo the mikvah. He felt it would be a chizik and tyrus ha that if there was a beautiful and gorgeous mikvah, which is actually a philosophy that works today in many mikvahs around the world, that's, that's the way they do it, but he was the first one to think of it back in Poland in the 1920s. And he tries to redo the mikvah to make it nice, to make it attractive, to make it that people would want to go and they would not, because, uh, you know, there was a movement towards secularization in all the towns across Poland in the interwar period, and people were using the mikvah less, Chavetz Chaim famously gave a speech to women in Vilna. He spoke to, in the great synagogue in Vilna, Chavetz Chaim gave a speech to over 2,000 women who crowded into the shul about Tyrus HaMeshpacha, which is also a story in itself. So Rameir Shapiro is trying to give a chizek to Tyrus HaMeshpacha. So he wants to redo the mikvah. He goes to the Hasidim in Piyotrikov, the wealthy Hasidim, and they say, well, Rabbi, is the mikveh puzzle? He says, no, the mikveh is still kosher. So why do we need to build a new mikveh? So they're not giving him any money. So he goes to the kehila, which collects taxes from every mem- Jewish member of the community. And he says, can we allot some uh, f- from the budget to build a new mikveh? And they say, yeah, they're Bundists. They say, yeah, Rabbi, religious practices, it's old-fashioned, get out of here. So he's very smart. One of Rameer Shapiro's Great, uh, great uh, characteristics was that he knew how to get along with people. He knew how to deal with people, even the ones that were different than him, which is also something not so commonly found today. And he says to them, let me ask you something. Does everyone in Piotrkov, every Jew in Piotrkov, do they have a shower at home with running water? He said, no, of course not. Only the wealthy have in those days. He said, no, no, only the wealthy have. So he says to them, let me ask you something. Is there a public bathhouse in Piotrkov, which the Jewish community supports? They say, no, Rabbi. Rameir Shapiro points his finger at them and yells, Kapitalistin! You guys are a bunch of capitalists. You only care for the rich. What about the workers? The simple workers have no public bathhouse. They say, Rabbi, how much do you need for the bathhouse? He says, 30,000 zloty. They said, Rabbi, take 30,000 zloty. And when Rameir Shapiro built the bathhouse, he made sure that it was a kosher mikveh as well. So somehow the Bund because they care so much about the workers as socialists, they end up building a kosher mikveh. That's just a little bit about the Bund. Um, when we go to the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery uh, on tours, incredibly, well, there's a section in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery of the Yiddish theater, the Esther Kaminska Yiddish theater, actors, directors, which was originally came from the, uh, the world of the Bund, even though not everyone there was Bundist. And then there's a section of the cemetery that is, that, that is Bundist members, including a memorial to the Bundists who were killed in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And you get to just get a glimpse 
of that, uh, that side of Jewish history, which, um, which existed in both Warsaw and throughout Poland, to a certain extent in Lithuania, in the interwar period. That was a little bit about the Bund, um, Yehudi Geber, uh, for tours to learn not just about the Bund, not just about Jewish politics, about lots of other exciting stuff. You can email me, ygebss at gmail.com.